following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Yeah, kia ora koutou katoa, church whanau. So, we have the slides. Yes, thank you. So Rick and Morty is this really highly popular animated TV show, and it follows the adventures of Rick, who's a mad scientist, makes things in his garage, and his uh, grandson, Morty, who accompanies him on these adventures. And Rick is generally a kind of avowed atheist who thinks he's smarter than God. And uh, so it's somewhat surprising then when the recent episode dealt with Christianity in some way. And in the episode, Rick and Morty are trapped on this story train run by the Story Lord. And the story train is powered by the story engine. And so over the course of the episode, all of the compelling, interesting ideas from Rick and Morty's heads are sucked out of them and used to power this story train. And so towards the end of the episode, Rick has this brainwave. He's going to sabotage this whole process. And to do so, he starts telling the gospel story and even leads his grandson, Morty, in the sinner's prayer. And as he does this, the, the meters on the engine, the likability, appealability meters drain completely, and uh, the story lord gets outraged and says, what are you doing? And Rick says sarcastically, what do you mean? This is the greatest story ever told. And the story lord says, no, it's not. It's awful. Now, I tell that story because... I think it puts its finger on something to do with the gospel and this popular conception of the gospel, the popular consciousness, right? And that is that the gospel, uh, for many people, doesn't seem to be a good story. It seems to be a story that is not appealing or alluring or compelling, but something that puts them off or is some, some kind of ugly story. And there are many versions of that story, I think, but one of the versions, I think, goes something like this. So in the beginning, we have this perfect God, and God then creates humanity. And humanity is sort of screw up from the very beginning, right? God has established some sort of arbitrary rules, these thou shalt nots that you shouldn't do, and humans can't even um, obey those. And so they break them, and God being the vegetable God he is, uh, kicks them out of the garden and curses them forever. And so in this, in this version of the story, then, what needs to happen is that God's anger needs to be appeased, right? And so God comes up with this plan to appease his anger, and that is he's going to send his own son down to die this horrific death in what one commentator calls a version of cosmic child abuse. And so this is what happens. So Jesus comes down, and who is this person? What does he do? It doesn't really matter too much in this story. What matters is that he dies. So Jesus dies and uh, kind of resets us back to the default state at the very beginning. And after a few days, he uh, you know, goes back up to heaven and becomes this sort of uh, disconnected deity, this absentee landlord, as, as some people call it. Now, what does this have to do with us today? Not a whole lot. Because in this version of the story, Christianity is a very personal faith, right? 
so that when I'm five years old or ten years old or whatever, I pray this special prayer and I get to join this club of Christians. In this story, the club is mainly defined by what it's against, so the things that it doesn't do and the communities and lifestyles that it sort of judges or sets itself against. But if you're a part of this club, then you get to go to heaven when you die, and if you're not part of this club, you are punished for all eternity. So that's the story, and uh, I hope you can see why it's not a good story, not a good version of events for a lot of people. And, you know, to be clear, that's a, that's a distortion, this cartoon version of the story, right? But it is a version I think we see in popular consciousness. And if we're honest, you know, some of those ideas actually come quite close to what we believe uh, sometimes. And certainly for me, when I was going through and deconstructing what I was believing a few years ago, um, I realized that a lot of these ideas were quite close to things I believed. And it created a version of God then that I didn't love, I didn't even really like, and uh, certainly a faith that I couldn't get behind. And so the story matters, right? The story matters because it shapes our definition of who God is, and it matters because it shapes uh, the kind of faith that we have. And if we have a bad story, then it can produce a kind of faith that seems very irrelevant for contemporary life, or um, one that seems quite antagonistic, right? It's defined by hostility towards other people. So my goal today, then, is really simple. It's just to tell a better story. And... To be clear, you know, the gospel, there's nothing really wrong with it. We're not going to be reinventing the gospel. We're going to be sort of recovering the gospel in a way. And so to tell this story, I'm going to use two images. And we're going to get stuck straight in. So this is the first image. Um, this is called The Icon of the Trinity by Andrei Rublev. That's a painting done in the 15th century. It's probably the most famous uh, icon and considered to be a pinnacle of Russian art. So we could talk about this for a few weeks, but I'm just going to pick out a few things from it today. So what are we looking at? What is this painting? So this painting is based on this story from Genesis where it said that Yahweh visits Abraham while he's camping under the trees at Mamre. And what's interesting in the story is that there's not one visitor, but three visitors, right? And so Rublev's using this story as a sort of springboard to think about what God is like. And so we can see here then that we have these three figures, right? Father on the left, and the son in the middle, and then uh, spirit on the far right side. You can go to the other slide, actually. Zoom in a bit. There we go. This is going to be hard, a little bit hard to see, but hopefully you bear with me. Um, so we have the father, son, and spirit. And Rublev depicts each of these as unique persons. So on the left, we have the father. The father wears this cloak, which looks yellow, orange. It actually looks different in every reproduction. It's difficult to describe. And this gestures towards uh, the father as someone who defies description, right? He's beyond our comprehension. He says, I am who I am. He cannot be put in a box. On the far right side, we have the spirit. And the spirit wears this green cloak. And green here symbolizes new life, this idea that Whatever the spirit touches is given new life. So we have these quite distinct uh, persons, right? But at the same time, there's this sort of unity. So uh, if you look at the, the, the figures, each of them is exactly the same size. And if you look closely at the painting, you can see that each of their faces is actually identical with the other ones. 
So we have this idea of this diversity, but this unity, this three-in-oneness, right, of the Trinity. And this helps us, I think, to move away from Trinity as, you know, this abstract theological doctrine. Um, but I think the key idea here is really that God is relational, right? The inner life of God, of Yahweh, is relational. And it's these three figures, each of them giving and receiving in love. Um, so it's relational just as we are relational. And we can see that through the gazes of the figures. So on the far left, then, you have the, the father who gazes in love towards the son. And here I always remind, it's reminded of this verse, um, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, right? And then in the middle, then, we have the son who looks back in love towards the father, but then who also points these two fingers, this conventional sign of blessing, towards the spirit on the far right. And the, the spirit then looks back towards the other two uh, figures. So we have this kind of circle, right? And your eyes actually make a circle as you're looking at this painting. And the circle then represents sort of divine love, this divine circle, this idea that relationality is at the center of who God is, just as we are relational, God is relational. And in fact, by understanding the relationship to ourselves and to others and to the world, we can also understand this divine relationship that underpins all those things. So, relational. This is our first building block for our story. Now, secondly, I want to zoom in. Actually, if we go back to the other slide. At the very center of this painting, then, is this object in the middle of the table. And on one level, of course, it's the lamb that Abraham served the guests, right? But it also looks like a chalice or an altar, and it immediately points towards like the sacrament and the lamb that was slain, and to these ideas then of suffering and death. So at the heart of this harmonious relationship is this, this idea of suffering and death. And I think this helps us to then develop an understanding of sin, which is much more uh, serious, which kind of gets at the stakes of the story, right? So in the bad story I told earlier, sin was a set of arbitrary rules, right? These do's and don'ts. And um, sin today, really, this kind of resonates with sin today, where sin is this very trivial thing. It's something that's a little bit naughty, right, but that we indulge in anyway. You have this sinfully good chocolate that you love. Um, and so this is why some commentators actually ditch this word sin altogether and replace it with the human capacity to mess things up, right? And I think this helps us, this immediately is more identifiable, to us and helps us to understand what is at stake. And we see in the Hebrew scriptures then that they portray this capacity uh, in really no holds barred terms, right? So as we move away from the source of goodness in life, we gradually get more and more abuse, more toxicity, more dysfunction, uh, more issues. We get this sort of brokenness that appears and uh, threatens to unravel humanity. And uh, in the end, then, we have what's the sort of death of the identity, death of the family, death of community, and so on. And so the Orthodox understanding there here is that Jesus descends into this death, right? He humbles himself to the point of death, as the scriptures say, and allows himself to be swallowed up by this death. 
but in doing so, obliterates death, annihilates death, and the power of death over us. Thank you. We get an amen in the front. Right, so we had this much more serious idea then of what's at stake in this story. And this is why, you know, early church fathers talked about sin as a sort of fatal flaw. It's not the sort of arbitrary rules and do's and don'ts. It's this kind of disease that takes over humanity and threatens to corrupt this masterpiece that Yahweh has created. So Jesus uh, enters then death and overcomes it. And the shorthand for that is that Jesus overcomes death by his death. Oh, a slide disappeared. Can we have our slides back? Oh, there we go. <laughs> right. And then the third point here on this painting and the last one is I'm going to go back to this figure in the center. So this is the Son of God again. And the Son of God wears this blue sash. And blue in the icon tradition represents divinity. So this idea that he has this divine nature. Right? But then underneath it, he has this brown cloak. And this brown cloak represents earth or humanity. So the idea here is that Jesus is bringing together these two different natures, right? The divine and the human in his incarnation. And by doing so, he really elevates humanity to this new level. He provides this kind of new union with God. Now, in the bad story I told earlier, uh, the incarnation didn't even really feature Right? Remember, we said that God's, Jesus' life didn't really matter. Uh, what really mattered is that Jesus dies. And in fact, in that story, we could say that Jesus really wasted a lot of time living on earth when he could have beamed down and died and uh, accomplished the exact same thing. Right? Um, and in that bad story, then, by dying, Jesus sort of returns us to our default state and gets us back to the status quo. Right? Yeah, now, in this painting has a quite a different idea. This idea of incarnation is really important. So the fact that Jesus comes as a human and he brings together these two natures, he interweaves these two natures together. And by doing so, then, he sort of unlocks this new set of capacities. He elevates humanity in this new way. And uh, by doing so, then, he allows us really to tap into this new kind of spiritual life, to have this new access way into God. And this is not a kind of a backup plan that God makes up to scrambling to, to, to kind of fix things, but it was a primary plan all along. And this, is, this plan then does not just get us back to square one, to status quo, but to gives us something additional, right? This is what one commentator calls the solution, but also the surplus. So we have this new set of riches, this new inheritance, all these additional things that we didn't have before. And the orthodox shorthand for all of this is that God becomes man so that man can become God. By God here, we don't mean many gods, we mean godly, right? So more grace-filled, more joyful, more patient, more kind, more loving, and all of these things. So we have this incarnational uh, life, and that's the third point of this image. So then we have these new building blocks, right? This relational idea, this idea of sin as fatal, and this incarnational idea. 
Now, the next image we're going to talk about is the face of Jesus. Now, when we think about the face of Jesus, these are often the images that come to mind. And certainly when we look at books and illustrations, um, paintings, or Google search results, these are the kinds of images that we get. This is your blue-eyed, blonde-haired Jesus. And to a certain extent, you know, every culture, every community is going to do this, is going to adapt Jesus to their likeness, right, in order to identify with him more. Um, the problem with these kinds of images is that they're so dominant and they're really ahistorical, right? So they rip Jesus out of a particular time and place in history and in doing so kind of remold Jesus. Um, they are able to then to turn him into something, to someone who is a bit more comfortable, who says more suitable things, more appropriate things, more palatable things, right? And sadly, this has been used in the past then to sort of prop up existing systems of oppression, existing cultural and political values, right? Jesus gets instrumentalized to say what I want him to say. And this really echoes then Jesus in the story I told earlier, the bad story, where Jesus really is uh, not so much as a human as a way for me to get to heaven, right? Jesus is a mechanism rather than a person. And so, who was this person? This next image I'm going to show in a second, I think, helps to remind us of who this person was. Now, this image was put together by a team of forensic anthropologists. So this team uh, excavated three skulls from Galilee in the first century, and uh, they scanned those skulls and then did a 3D model, developed skin and face over the top, and then consulted with scholars about things like hair and clothing and so on, what they would look like. And this is the image that they arrived at. Now, this image is both logical and sort of shocking at the same time. Right? Um, it has, it's a Jewish Jesus with dark olive skin, with this thick bushy beard, with what the magazine calls a broad peasant face. So straight away then we have this very different idea of Jesus, um, one that is grounded back into a time and place and history, a certain culture, a certain people group, and so on. And this image then, to me, helps us to remind us then of who this person was. So who was this person? This is a person who was born to a Jewish teenager. This is a person who had to flee for his life from a country because he was afraid. We call those people today refugees, right? This is a person who grew up in poverty, was surrounded by poverty, and in fact had to rely on other people during his ministry years for his own welfare. And this is a person who was part of an oppressed people group under the Roman Empire. So rather than being a colonizer, he was a colonized. Yeah? And so we start to get this very different understanding, this different portrait of Jesus. A portrait that is not Jesus for winners, right, for the victors, but someone who looks much more marginal, oppressed, alien, and so on. Much more, in fact, like Isaiah 53's suffering servant, where it says that Jesus was despised and rejected by men. And so you get this person then who 
uh, is oppressed and marginal, and who hangs out with marginal people, with day laborers and sex workers and fishermen and corrupt tax collectors and so on. And so this immediately, I think, should challenge the church to think about who's in the church, who's not in the church, right? Uh, what are our church ministries doing? Is the church for the winners of the world who have it all together, or is it for somebody else, for the rest of us, right? Um, so we have this then more inclusive idea, I think, of, of this gospel story, and uh, this inclusion then helps us to create a better story, I think. So we have this marginal Jesus, and then finally on this image and building on this idea, then we have this radical Jesus. You know, so we've already talked about the fact that Jesus often gets kind of cleaned up to be more palatable, but I think this image to me helps us to remind us then of just how radical this person was. So Jesus, or Yeshua, was thoroughly Jewish, of course, but also pushed really hard against the oppressive aspects of the temple system, the religious system of his day. And in fact, I, you know, generated or crafted this whip that he used to drive the moneylenders out of the temple courts because they were defiling the house of God, but also just ripping off poor people, vulnerable people, and so on. So we get this critique, then a religious system, and then we also have this critique of the Roman system, the imperial system. So Jesus pays taxes, of course, and obeys certain laws, but at the same time calls himself Lord, right, in direct defiance of the Lord, who would be uh, Julius Caesar, of head of the empire. So he had this radical critique, then, of religious systems and the state systems of the day, these systems that could often be violent and oppressive. But at the same time, he puts forward this positive vision, right? This bold new vision for a new kingdom that runs on a different set of values, a whole different set of priorities. And in fact, often turns the world's values on their head, right? And this is why we get these bizarre statements like, blessed are the poor, blessed are those who are persecuted. These statements don't seem to make much sense. And the same thing can be said with the uh, early church, where we get descriptions that they sold everything they had so that no one would be in need. Right? And what world does that make sense in? Not this world. Right? So Jesus is establishing then this kind of new world on top of a world, a world that doesn't run on common sense, but runs on what we call maybe kingdom sense, this new set of values and paradigms and principles. With this really radical then new vision, and this vision then leads to this kind of strange but beautiful scenes where uh, we read that Jew and Gentile, male and female, master and slave, sit down alongside each other, they have a meal together, they pray together, they worship together, right? This sort of obliteration of social hierarchies and the creation of something new. And that new thing, I think, one of the ways to understand it is this idea of justice, right? So justice has been something that's been missing from the story in some ways, or maybe we've lost it in some ways. Justice is something that uh, certainly when we get surveys of young people and why they leave the church, the lack of justice is one of the reasons they give. 
And some would say, you know, justice is not enough. But I think the hunger, the desire there for justice is absolutely the right desire. It's just that our version of justice is not enough, right? It's too limited in some ways. And what we see then in the scriptures and the Yahweh's interventions through his people then is not just this material justice, but also a justice that's social and spiritual and mental and societal and so on. It's much more holistic, right? It's much more pervasive. And in fact, when we get to this idea of this holistic justice, then we get into ideas of reconciliation, of healing, redemption. And really we can scale up this vision and uh, think about this grand, this grand plan, this grand vision of justice and the reconciliation of all things. This is what uh, some commentators called cosmic redemption. Right? This idea that we see in scriptures where it says that um, you know, Ephesians 1, we want to bring all things in heaven and on earth under the head of Christ. We have Colossians 1 where it said that you know, God is pleased to reconcile to himself all things. And so we have this very grand plan, this grand vision uh, that means that God will permeate into all things. And this is sort of the end point of history, really, which, uh, you know, 1 Corinthians talks about this, this goal and this aim becomes so that God may be all in all, so that God and his kingdom and his values will permeate every nook and cranny, every heart, and so on. And I think this starts to give us a really compelling and beautiful story to work with. This plan, then, is something that Yahweh will absolutely carry forward himself. But what's beautiful is also that he invites us to be co-participants in that plan. And so that somehow by caring for the children, caring for elderly, doing great plumbing, driving a bus, designing software caring for our environment, right? All these things, we can use our talents and skills towards something meaningful, be participants within this larger project. And so then when we think about Jesus as someone radical, we do arrive at a kind of revolution, right? But it's a revolution that is not advanced by violent bloodshed, but by this metanoia, this internal reconfiguration of heart and mind, and the way in which that spills out into society in a million small ways. Right, so we have then uh, these five building blocks for our new story. And we have this uh, relational idea, this idea of sin being something that's fatal. This incarnational idea where Jesus knits together two natures. This idea of Jesus as someone who's marginal and including others. And this idea of radical Jesus that moves towards justice. Those are the five building blocks. And so to conclude then, to sum up, then I just want to tell a story with these new building blocks that we have. And this is one version of the story I think the homework for you is to come up with your own version of the story or to think about what version you would tell. So in the beginning then we have this, uh, 
Trinitarian God, right? This God who is in relation, this Father and Son and Spirit, each in relation to each other, each completing each other, each giving and receiving love. And this love then is so great that it wants to share itself with others. It spills over into Yahweh's masterpiece of creation and the pinnacle of that creation being humanity. Humanity is a good thing. But, and uh, sin enters that relation, that humanity then, that cosmos, and threatens it, threatens to unravel it, threatens to mar this masterpiece that Yahweh has created. And so God, being a good God that he is, um, will not allow this to happen. And so he enters the picture, right? He descends to death, humbles himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, allows himself to be overcome by that death, but in doing so annihilates death, annihilates the power of death. He overcomes death by his death. So that's what Jesus accomplishes, but he also brings together these two natures, the human and the divine, and in doing so elevates humanity, um, allows us to access God in this new way, and that he becomes man so that man can become God. And then finally, Jesus leaves behind or initiates this new kingdom, this kingdom based on justice, this holistic sense of justice then, uh, a new set of values, new set of priorities, um, this idea of this grand vision then of the reconciliation of all things, a vision that he will carry forward, but one that he also invites us to participate in through our own skills and experiences and talents. So that's my version of the story, and uh, I hope that you can come up with your own. I hope this has been not too controversial, but helpful in a way, productive in a way, and that it will help us to tell a better story, and in doing so, to think about a better faith and a better version of who God is for us. Someone more, something more accurate, more aligned with what actually the reality is. Thanks. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.